Welcome to DOS, a conversation in and around exhibitions. In this episode, artists Anna Craycroft and Harry Dodge visit Leap Before You Look, Black Mountain College, 1933 to 1957, curated by Helen Molesworth and on view at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles. It was a clear day. Their conversation is interpreted by Stacy Bushy as Harry and Anna Salazar as Anna. Do you want to look at this wall text? It's a pretty long didactic. We're going to be spending a lot of time reading in this exhibition. There's this timeline, wall text, gallery handouts, and also object labels. That's okay. I'm kind of the person that hears Black Mountain and I have this sort of awful split. On the one hand, I love everything about it. Aesthetically, the rural setting, the intensely social art communalism. But I also have this knee-jerk psychic admission, like, ugh, a bunch of privileged white guys. Fuck them. Yeah, it was a bunch of privileged white guys. <laughs> yeah, but I want to give it a chance here because I think there's something else about it that I am obviously deeply interested in. You know, like pedagogy and also sociality, just hanging out. There's definitely a lot of sociality and hanging out. This is a beautiful portrait of Dewey. The abundant grayscale, that grain, the silver gelatin glow. This is another interesting thing, too, about the show. This work, I think, is one of the students. So there's a dual purpose to all its parts. Yeah, this looks like art and document at the same time. I find that retooling of function intriguing here. It's subtle, but suggests a breadth of interest, a kind of odd fertility. That's a surprise in a didactic timeline. You know, I was just in Houston and happened to visit the Manil collection where they almost wholly dispensed with the didactics. There was something disorienting, and also deeply orienting, about seeing these kind of false analogies being made. You know, the way they put something of the shape into proximity of something shaped similarly, even if they were created thousands of years apart. And they don't really address the license they're taking with these objects. You see items from locations across the globe, from totally different cultures and nothing is said about that. So you're just kind of enmeshed with nearly pure form and aura, false analogies, equivalences, and so on. That was really powerful, weirdly powerful. Because I love language, but the fact that I was just there with all this form was really moving. It was very intense, a very deep experience of the artworks. Not really the paintings, but everything else, the objects. Oddly, I had ordered an iron meteorite from eBay the day before I left. So I had this kind of overloping, addictive feeling the whole time I was in Houston. Like the meteor will soon arrive at my house. This kind of collector's feeling. It has to be the very first time I've identified with the collector, the person making a collection. Here I was walking around this little museum, projecting a kind of loving, sweaty, obsessive erotics onto the collector's urge. It's hilarious. 
And when I was looking at the work, I kept wondering whether or not I had just not paid attention to this kind of work before, or whether the pieces themselves were particularly well curated. I kind of launched into Minnell's skin, you know? <laughs> yeah. Did you read the Claire Bishop Art Forum essay published last fall, where she writes about the artist as curator? How artists curate by taste or personal affinity and are not obliged to put the provenance of the works and whether this is in a historical, academically irresponsible approach. So then there's this sort of thing that happens when you look at it. You think about the artist who curated it, right? And I think that's kind of the experience at the Manil. You thought about the curator, you thought about the collectors and the proclivity that was behind putting all the works together. And then you thought about what it is about this individual work that was powerful. But I also felt like I was experiencing the aura of the works in a kind of direct way, more closely, one-on-one. -on -one. The attraction of matter to matter. Not that I'm into the ahistorical or anything, but that was my experience. After connecting to the object, then my questions began. Is it that the works are powerful? Or is it that the collectors chose very powerful works? So it was secondary consideration trying to figure out why I was having such intense experiences with the artworks. Yeah, they do a very good job exalting all the objects in the room. But I do think that a historic show like this one, as a historic show, has to be didactic, because it has to locate itself. But at the same time, the whole ethos of Black Mountain is supposedly about this immediate experience, a stepping out of time. And that really runs contrary, you know. Do you want to finish reading? Yeah, let me just pass through. Did the students pay to go to school? Yes. They have all the numbers of what was paid, and it was pretty low. And there were students who paid less. And there were situations where really good students would be allowed to pay way less than others. But there wasn't anything like a scholarship. There were accommodations made. And then for students who weren't as good, they would stay so long as they were paying. I realize now I've, I've always kind of idealized it, assumed that it was free or no one was paying much. It was absolutely not free. But also there was a work program towards the beginning. It wasn't directly related to tuition, but was connected to what students contributed to build and sustain the school. Many of them farmed to grow the food and constructed the buildings on campus. Yes, that is so fucking awesome, I think. Because during that kind of work, a lot of sociality can happen. And that's what many people argue for as a positive aspect of the school, especially because the students weren't forced to do the work, but many apparently wanted to. That's positive. Volunteerism strikes me as optimal policy. Always the best first experiment, right? You know, it seems like if you were there with everyone, it would be fun to go build something or clean something together. How about these Albers wood blocks? I have to say they're so beautiful. They really are. That's a woodcut on plywood or something? Yes, I think it's just the grain of the wood. Awesome. They look really contemporary, this line quality, the palette. 
This one looks really spaceshipy. So this school lasted 25 years? 24 years, actually. Apparently, John Andrew Rice, who started the school, didn't want it to last. You know it was an art school, right? Black Mountain College was not an art school. Oh, it wasn't? Officially? It was just a school? When Rice started, a part of the idea was to create a kind of learning environment where arts was at the center, but it was really about the whole person learning, not about studying a specific field. Oh, so yeah, that tension. We kind of have that, those tensions intra-departmentally at CalArts, common enough. You're always going to have faculty who are looking to hire more people who teach skills, you know? Figure out productive ways of talking to the students about manifesting objects. And there are going to be people who think that it's a zero-sum game. Someone in a faculty meeting last year said that they thought skills teaching inhibited thinking. I was new, but I raised my hand right away and I said, can we have another faculty meeting where we talk more in depth about how skills and thinking are not mutually exclusive? <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. But I mean, it's one of my abiding interests, the question of how the body's non-language intelligence interact with language. It's emergent, you know, a hot potion. I mean, intelligence is. And it can kind of ride on a few different substrates, not exclusively material on the inside of your skull, I mean, people still devalue the idea that the body is thinking. But yeah, it creates an interesting faculty, an interesting curriculum. It pressures the students. When people have this diverging interest? Yeah, different versions of what should be taught. The debates are productive. Faculty come into your studio with different ethoi. I think some people would argue that that's really confusing. It is no doubt confusing, but it forces an important issue. They realize, oh, I have to sift through this stuff because there's no party line here. And it throws them back on their own sense of empowerment or agency. That's my idea. I am absolutely for educating students with a sense of their whole lives being at stake, pushing them to address the world intersociality, embrace a sort of civic, ecstatic obligation. I agree with you, but I also think that one of the problems that happened at Black Mountain is that there was so much conflict. You could say that this is what made it a thriving community, because it was so unfixed. But there were constant debates about whether the school should have a more focused curriculum, or was it about the whole person? Was it about thinking beyond the community? Was it about these disciplines? It seems there was all this time wasted on that. But at the same time, it made a community that was constantly in flux and always asking questions about itself. Yeah, so why do you think of that as a problem? I'm saying that there are some problems from some of the reading that I've done, it seems that people would get really dogged and fixed in their positions. 
So the problem isn't that you have this heterogeneity of perspectives and ambitions or desires. The problem is the divisiveness that ran on in this school, literally, like paranoia about certain groups of people forming dissenting communities. Oh yeah, I see. An instance of when an excited, productive debate just becomes negative and divisive. That can happen. But it's worth noting that this is distinct from a situation in which folks pop a red flag up as soon as debate or differences of any kind occur. Right. But there's a human reality to emotional investment in positions that just happens with relationships and all these people living in such close proximity. How do you create an environment where people don't start setting off, where flux is productive and is generative rather than just unstable? And it feels like there's a way that historically, retrospectively, we look at this and see it like an environment of all these fervent, fertile creativity, but it doesn't necessarily feel like it was at the time. Hmm. You know, the question you're kind of asking is whether or not Black Mountain was the catalyst the spark that induced the productivity in the artists, or whether it was a kind of coincidence. That's exactly right, and I don't know. How would you know? <laughs> well, there's no way to know, especially because it didn't go on long enough that you could isolate some quality, some cause-effect correlative. But we want to believe in education so much that we want to say these amazing ideas, these amazing people that come out of this education or whatever it is, this school, this philosophy, whether it is Black Mountain or something else, they are the product of that environment. Yeah, we want to say that, but we don't know. Especially because it seems that there was a kind of feedback loop with people that were doing well. They were exciting to begin with, and then they were invited. Exactly. Which is how art schools still work. You're kind of mixing people who are unstoppably productive but want community and peer discourse with those who are aspirational and need feedback, all manner of support. Some can pay, some can't. And you know, it's a fantastic human-made stew of energy, bodies, aspirations, obsessions. It is very produced. Yes, designed and produced. Ha, huh, graphic tectonics. Shanti Shuinsky. I've never seen this before. Well, look at this one. This is beautiful. La Luz by Annie Albers. The aesthetics of the show are kind of evoking a countryfied space. This kind of aesthetics of craft or the aesthetics of the rule. Whatever that might be. This kind of porch feeling. This primitive furniture. There's a kind of anti-50s, you know, an anti-slick aesthetic. And it's not like it's not a clean exhibit, but there's this kind of pervasive feeling of it not being vacuumed of its historical texture. Right. And there are all these small, flat works hung together in radically different frames. So it has this eclectic vibe. This wall is really funny, though. It has a kind of group show at the school feeling. It's hung really close together. Unusual in a museum setting. And it is really comical how they repeat the motif. The mountain, certain shapes, certain color relationships. 
you do sort of feel like you're rooting for Team Black Mountain. I don't mind this kind of constructed theatrical feeling of place or environment. As fake as it is, I still don't mind it here for the show. Oh no, for sure not. But this show is interesting because it's kind of halfway between being theatrically constructed and showing the work without embellishment, right? Like the Albers desk that's around the corner over there except a similar design has been applied to the display furniture for all of the rooms. To me, those big display tables are really different. You mean because the wood is so much more massive and... Fucking crazy chunky. Way too chunky, if you ask me. There's no reason to have them that chunky, only to make them totally separate from the Albers furniture. Right makes them feel more like a pedestal. I don't know why they would make it so chunky. It's very, very strange. It's a little bit kind of like a woodworker's table. It's a little shakery or a little crate and barrel-y, but maybe they did it to really set apart from the Albers furniture, which has a kind of weightlessness suggested. Another interesting thing is that many of the students then became teachers at the school. So then this wall appears to be hung in alternating pattern of teacher, student, teacher, student. <laughs> oh, Rauschenberg was a student, right? Yes, he only went there because his wife Susan Weil was going there. It makes sense to put the teachers and the students together because they were trained to that, a kind of pedagogy of interpenetrability, a mutual imprecation of learner and teacher. Right, I think that's the myth, but I'm not sure if that's actually true. Well, it probably varied by teacher. I think Albers was famously dictatorial. I'm sure some of them were not. He was dictatorial, but thought through these shared exercises, students would develop independent thinking. <laughs> Productivity and a creative inertia. Hmm. This is an interesting idea. It contextualizes Black Mountain historically. The horrors of war, the valuation of the individual, a kind of forming force. It's about the zeitgeist there at the school with regard to communism or variations on communalism as they were being practiced at the time. I think it's very interesting to see how the politics of personal responsibility, individuality, sociality, and the rhetorics and practices of interconnectedness manifest in our community. It's a really auspicious moment right now because of climate change. I'm finding this whole renewed conversation about interconnectedness kind of rolling up. It seems to me almost a mainstream belief suddenly. The idea that we are interpenetrated by or connected to our environment and everything in it. And so it definitely has its place in an art school. And there now the conversation isn't just about, say, collaboration, but really about what it is to be an individual. Is that even possible and how does that work? What is it when we, like Lassant wrote, 
consent not to be a single being. But at this point, the 1940s, obviously there's a whole different pressure on the idea of the individual. It seems like it's pressured by fascism or pressured by communism. I'm assuming here, but maybe you know more. I think the cultivation of individuality being applied at Black Mountain College fell under the rubric of progressive education. The purpose it served here evolved out of the shift in pedagogy from the 19th into the 20th century. And that's why Dewey gets involved right at the beginning, because he evolved some of the existing theories about the necessity of individuality for education. But then it's like... Like each student needs to be addressed on their own terms. Yeah, I agree with that. But I think... But for Dewey, on their own terms also means as responsible citizens, as beholden to their community, with a commitment to their sociality, their culture, its traditions, etc. I read recently that Dewey's theories were adapted to appease the industrialists who supported him, and thus became less about individuality and more about training students to perform and behave. So actually not empowering students as a single being, but fixing them within a set of power relations. Look, look at this. This has to be deliberately hung because the works look identical next to one another. But this is a Pat Paslov, and this one is a de Kooning. Here are more like the Rauschenberg. It feels like it's teacher, student, student. Well, they're doing that, clearly. Influencing one another, talking with Marx, speaking one another's visual grammar, say. Only one person gets to escape with the trademark style. One person gets to turn it into a brand, right? The rich white guy. No, it's not the rich white guy with the mark. It's the rich white guy who owns the white guy with the mark. Exactly. But people do think together, paint together, find shapes together and become, you know, interested in a web of materials together. Yeah, I think that's what you want a show like this to say. But it does focus on the names that we recognize. Or at least it's difficult not to do that as the audience. There are so many people who were at Black Mountain for longer than, say, de Kooning or Motherwell, or who were more influential, like MC Richards or Shanti Shawinsky. The show doesn't seem concerned with making a kind of social critique, placing anything in a kind of contemporary light or value judgment. These didactics are very much reportage, very little overt analysis. Right, but the making of the show right now seems so prescient. I mean, it was Helen Molesworth who initially curated the show, and she also recently moderated the conversation in Art Forum about the state of art school right now. So it seems like the show has a stake in how we value art schools today. I think you're right, but I'm not reading it in the didactics. I'm still thinking about this teacher-student question. I was just reading something about the idea that even technological invention is evolutionary, kind of related to the evolution of organisms. The idea is that you can't make a car in, in the year 200 or something. It has to accrue. There are these sedimentary technologies the question on the author's mind was, are these inventions inevitable? 
Because they're evolving a kind of Darwinian sense, just like an organism. The idea is that we're all thinking together, that there's no one person that has this kind of eureka moment. And further, that eureka moments are breakthroughs founded upon loads of work that you've done, say, yourself, but also more importantly, work that others have done, centuries of thinking. So it's another version of interconnectedness, and it's another version of author. So with that idea, I see that you can almost annihilate the idea of individual authorship. But to go sideways here for a second, I think as long as you are already acknowledging historical precedents, that the practice of crediting marks and moves is fine, even important. But I think with art, like this right here, it looks like 10 Willem de Kooning's on the wall. There are 10 different artists. Instead of me thinking, oh shit, these people were all copying him, which would be easy enough to think and could be correct. I also want to be flooded with a visceral sense of how ecstatic it is for everyone to join in a similar investigation at the same time. And how often people just don't think of art making in that way. And it's definitely not in the didactics here. It's not in the didactics? I don't think so, no. But it is in the hang. Yes. Hmm. Well, the thing is, if it's not in the didactics, we're not sure what the intent of that hang is. That's all I'm saying. I think if you weren't me and super interested in intersubjectivity and the plural subject right now, you might see it totally differently. Like, this guy was a fascist and he made his students paint like him which honestly would be plausible. But I think if you were excited enough, you might massage your read and find a proposal for ecstatic sociality. Do you think that art school is like a kind of microcosm of the way that happens on a larger scale, of that accumulation over time and that kind of thing, people thinking in groups across networks and maybe across geography, across time, the way that ideas evolve and experiments and technologies evolve that the hope for art school is that it somehow creates this microcosm of that. Mm, of a kind of fertility in time, an emergent alchemical relation space? Yeah, I think it's an experiment. Yes, it's an experiment in thinking together or learning together. And it's an opportunity for bodies to fall in love, you know, with each other and with each other's thoughts. And it puts people in proximity. I mean, at its best, that is what it does. We walk through this and I realize how imprinted I am with the aesthetic of all this work as true art. Art looks like this, so funny. I know. It has to do with my mom. We lived in the suburbs, but we were always tripping down to the Art Institute of Chicago. This was the 70s. My mom was really into not only Chagall and Monet, but Rauschenberg and stuff. And so it's just so funny to walk through this. The only aesthetic choices in the show, you know, the ones I really don't like, are where they put like a documentary photograph, a kind of icky documentary photograph, that's mounted on mat board in the middle of other stuff. I just don't love that. Why? Is it like an art, non-art thing? Yeah, they're too close together. They're smashing them really close together. 
But for me, that's where the show is interesting as a didactic because it sort of puts all the information on one plane. Like, that is obviously photodidactic if you're looking for a way to describe it. Yeah. The one of the dancer next to the leaves. There was a picture of a dancer next to Oliver's leaves from the cover of the book. Yeah, I remember. I'm into it because it undoes the art, the artiness of the objects. God bless you. And then you have to look for each of the objects and ask, how is this a didactic? What does this teach me? Oh, I see. It democratizes as a didactic instead of everything is art. <laughs> That's what I want. Everything is a didactic. I love that. I just want somebody to explain the world to me. I love that idea. Well, that's what we're doing. I mean, well, this idea, texture, was what I was talking about in the other room. There's a lot of texture that's coming through in the setup. Somehow they made a sense of texture that feels wooly, it feels deserty, you know? And it's not by putting rocks and gravel on the floor. It, it's some other thing that they've done. I'm not sure. That's what I'm saying. It's a haptic didactic. If all of the information is potentially a didactic, then you have to read everything for whatever it has to offer you. So I have to read this texture of this fabric as equally informational as the way that the shadow is hitting the light. And there are many levels of how you gain information in this exhibition. Hmm. Do you think that the hang, the curator's decisions, are pushing you into a sensitivity? Well, I already look at work that way. I have a kind of fixation right now on what's the connection between an art object and the didactic. To then see a show that's about art school, where the objects are essentially telling you more or less what people taught and learned in that environment, then you can't not read the work that way. Yeah, I'm with you in all that. I don't know if this is the way that I want that, to be able to just see that when you see the artworks. I'm not sure whether it's necessary to democratize all the information in order to make the point. Well, again, it's paradigmatic. It's what you're bringing to the show, which isn't to say that something constructed couldn't also bring you there. But it's like what you said in the beginning about the menil, because that wall text wasn't there, the work itself brought you someplace that you couldn't have gotten to otherwise. Well, that's what I don't know because there is no control group. All I know is I've never looked at work in just that way. Really, it had to do with my meteorite. I was about to get this natural object. And I'm always amazed by natural objects. And so I'm often not as amazed by human-made objects. But it went away for a minute, and I was just as amazed by the objects in this museum. It's funny, because growing up in New York in the 80s, I went to museums regularly the Met and the MoMA, and they were super quiet, tranquil places. So that was always my place of reverence and meditation. But then this shifted over the last 20 years as museums became more focused on their populism and attendance numbers, and I totally got disillusioned about them and distracted whenever I visited the galleries. So I couldn't have that feeling anymore. 
And the only place I was able to have it again was at really amazing rock formations in the desert and mountains. And then I only could find that reverence in a natural environment. But then I went to the Manil and something came Thank you back. for listening in. Dose Audio is produced and edited experience. by Ezra Tabul and Seth Kuat. Dose Conversations are instigated and edited by Sarah Demuz in collaboration with the original speakers. Join us again next time.